The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Help! I need somebody. Help! Not just anybody. Help! You know I need someone. Welcome to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. Family caregivers don't have to be alone in their experiences. You will hear from experts and other caregivers facing the same issues that you may be facing. Now, here is your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Welcome to episode 425 of Family Caregivers Unite. This is Dr. Gordon Adley, your host. I'm a physician retired from practice. Our topic today is serious mental illnesses as challenges for police and people. Now, serious mental illnesses include schizophrenia, and that that affects 1% of the population over the age of 15. It affects men and women with equal frequency. It's sometimes associated with symptoms which involve difficulties maintaining contact with reality, such as things called hallucinations, which is hearing voices or seeing things that are not based in reality, delusions, which are distorted false beliefs and disorganized thought processes, and something called false memories. Now, schizophrenia also interferes with a person's ability to think clearly, manage emotions and make decisions and relate to others. Now, another serious mental illness is depression. That causes persistent feelings of sadness and loss of interest and also occurs as something called clinical depression, which affects emotions, thinking and behavior, which undermines normal day-to-day activities and carries a high risk of suicide. And then yet another, the third on my list, is Alzheimer's disease, which is an irreversible progressive brain disorder that slowly destroys memory and thinking skills and eventually the ability to carry out the simplest of tasks. And it usually appears first in the mid-60s age group. Now, serious mental illnesses are associated with high-risk behaviors such as violence against others, self-harm, and or erratic and dangerous actions. Serious mental illnesses create serious difficulties for emergency responders because their effects resemble the effects of harmful substances such as street drugs, and for families and family caregivers in emergencies, all of which is why our topic, Serious Mental Illnesses as Challenges for Police and People, is so important for the mental health community and the police. To discuss it, my guest is Dr. Terry Coleman. Now, Terry was a police officer for nearly 40 years, including 10 years as a chief of police. Subsequently, he became a deputy minister for the Saskatchewan provincial government, where he was responsible for policing and corrections. He's a long-time member of the Canadian Association of Chiefs and has completed much work for the Mental Health Commission of Canada. 
And for the Commission's 2014 TEMPO, TEMPO framework for police education and training for interactions with people with mental health problems, he developed something called the Contemporary Policing Guidelines for working with the mental health system. And he also did that work for the Canadian Association of Chiefs. He holds three graduate degrees from the University of Regina, where he's an adjunct professor. He teaches policing and criminal justice online. And in 2003, he was invested in the Order of Merit for Police Forces by the Governor General of Canada. Welcome to the show, Terry. Thank you. Good to be here. Great. Terry, first question for you. Please tell us more about your current work as a public safety consultant and your research. Well, I'm self-employed as a public safety consultant, and I picked that up after I'd finished my sort of full-time work in in policing and uh, as a a deputy minister and uh, a few other related uh, matters. And um, I I work uh, with primarily corrections and police organizations, jails and and the like, Um, maybe the criminal justice system in general, but often it's in relation to interactions with people with mental illnesses. And in that regard, much of my work is with the Mental Health Commission. In fact, I've been involved with them since they were created and established in 2007. So the work that I do for them uh, has been varied, uh, but that does include several studies that have undertaken on their behalf over the last uh, seven or eight years now. Right. And that's, would you grade that or call that the research that you do, the work that you do for the commission? That's right. Yeah. Okay. Now, please tell us more about your career in policing. We've got a lot of information about you and your achievements, but just talk about your career a little bit more. Terry? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I started policing with the Calgary Police Service in uh, Western Canada at uh, a fairly large police service, and I spent uh, about 28 years there. I was an operational police officer for most of that. Um, patrol, and um, I worked a long time in uh, in plain clothes. I was the um, the staff sergeant in charge of the first Crime Stoppers program in Canada. Uh, of course, that was a U.S. program out of Albuquerque at the time, and seemed to fit our circumstances here in Calgary. And uh, it's still running now since uh, 1982. It's been long running, but I was the first one to do that. I worked uh, the first sex crimes unit in Canada that was established by the Calgary Police uh, way back, and uh, I also worked major crimes for an extended period of time. And then uh, for a while I led the surveillance teams with regard to the investigation of outlaw motorcycle gangs and um, organized crime conspiracy uh, investigations, and also led the surveillance teams through the 1988 Olympic Games uh, here in Calgary. And then uh, I ended up uh, leaving the Calgary Police Service, and as you say, I became the chief of police in Saskatchewan, Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan, actually. And I was there for about ten and a half years. Uh, in that regard, of course, I was responsible for all sorts of things as a chief of police. And it was a smaller police agency than Calgary, but it was uh, an interesting and exciting time. Right. Now, Different sort of question. Terry, please tell us about the most important things you personally learned from your career in policing. Terry? 
Well, that's an interesting question. I had to reflect upon that a little. Although many situations encountered by police on a day-to-day basis are similar, it doesn't take you long to realize that each one is unique. The people are unique, and and the circumstances are, are unique. So in terms of uh, what I learned or what was reinforced, certainly, as a police officer, was the need to, to understand others, not only those just you work with, but those that you encounter in your day-to-day work. And in that regard, of course, verbal communication skills are absolutely critical. Uh, patience and learning to back off from a situation. It's always an option. Um, there's a risk of generalizing. Uh, many police officers are averse to backing off, but it's absolutely essential to, to get the job done properly. And, uh, of course, many police officers understand that and do that. But it's, uh, it's certainly something one learns in, in policing. Let me just ask you to say a little bit more about backing off. Can you give us a practical instance of what you would refer to or define as backing off? Terry? Well, a a situation, and it's very much uh, applicable to interactions with people in crisis, if the the risk of self-harm or the risk of harm to others... um, is uh, is minimal or perhaps even non-existent, um, then it, it's it's a, it's a good idea to not necessarily just keep push push push, but use some patience, back off, try and let the situation uh, calm down, de-escalate, uh, maybe wait for some additional resources to come, uh, but uh, don't be in a rush. It's okay to to back off. Now, I never suggest that a police officer puts themselves or anybody else, for that matter, in any sort of danger. But there are times when it's quite okay to back off. But um, many police officers that I've encountered in my career are reversed to backing off. But it's okay. Yeah. Just let me, I'm still interested in this question of what's involved in backing off. Is this a physical thing where um, you, you, you're kind of getting close to somebody who is going through this erratic um, behavior, dangerous-looking behavior, but then you decide that the way forward may be backward. That is to say, you take some steps back physically and not just mentally. What What is the explanation, Terry? Well, it, well, well it could be. If, if a person is in a... Uh... A, a space that where they're already um, confined, um, a, a building. Uh, it's not necessary to be up close to them, perhaps, and at least until you've got some additional help and resources and, and things can calm down. So, yes, it can be backing off physically, but it can also be backing off um, verbally. I, I don't know. I think we've seen a few clips over the last few years of police officers shouting and screaming at somebody when I have no idea how they expect that person to even understand what they're saying under those circumstances. So backing off could include just lowering the tone of the whole thing also. Very important. And we're going to open up that some aspect of that discussion again in one of the following segments. But this question of, you know, backing off in the physical and physical and 
voice sense and in the psychological sense seems to me profoundly important. In other words, it's like, uh, you know, physicians at times have to decide when the best thing to do is nothing. Yeah. Um, a difficult decision requires you to know what you're doing. It may involve risk, but nevertheless, um, that's sometimes the right thing to do. Right. Now, we've re reached the time in this segment where we have to take the break. This is where I always say, um, uh, Terry, that we pay the rent. So this yeah, is yeah. Dr. Gordon Adler, and my guest is Dr. Terry Coleman. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on Voice America's Health and Wellness and Variety Channels, CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio, and sharingtheburden.ca. So listeners, please stay with us. We're coming back. American Heroes Network is a program for and about our American veteran heroes and their families. Join host Gary Ray as he shows what is being done to help our veterans and showcase the companies and organizations that are helping our veterans and their families rebuild their lives. Listen for American Heroes Network, live and powered by the Voice America Variety Channel, every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time. Do you love to travel? Now, that's a silly question, isn't it? Who doesn't love to travel? Join Lindsay T. Boyd, a.k.a. the Dreamweaver, for Travel Time. A professional travel agent, Lindsay will spotlight the world of travel, from maps and other travel tools to make your trips easier, to your rights as a passenger, to different aspects of travel, such as sports, faith, or experiential vacations. Travel Time with Lindsay T. Boyd, Dreamweaver, airs live every Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Do you need directions to solid financial future? If so, the Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with a roadmap to making smart money decisions in every area of your personal finances. Join Jordan every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern, for the Money Answer Show on the Voice America Business Channel. Learn how and where to get the best deals on mortgages, cars, and insurance. Find out the best ways to save for college and retirement. Get out of debt, improve your credit rating, and save on your taxes. The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with great tips on investment opportunities in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Help, you know I need someone. Help. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at mymonami.com. That's Doc, letter G, at M-Y-M-O-N-A-M-I dot com. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Dr. Terry Coleman. Our topic is serious mental illnesses as challenges for police and people. Terry, now let's please talk about the challenges created by serious mental illnesses for police and for people with whom the police are involved. So my first question, Terry, is this. What do you see as the most challenging of the challenges created for police when they themselves develop serious mental illnesses? Terry? Yeah, the, the, the most challenging, 
challenge and the challenges is for police is much the same as it is in the community at large, and that is overcoming the stigma and stereotypes associated with mental illness. Um, police are, well, we deliberately hire police to be representative of our community, so it's no surprise that some of these stigmas and stereotypes exist amongst our police personnel, uh, reflect uh, the community at large. So the problem with, with that sort of uh, mindset, if you want, is that they're often reluctant to disclose and access the services um, that they probably require to uh, to deal with the situation that they're in. Uh, of course, also, it's, there's an added factor around uh, the, the police world. It's uh, and would be in the military and fire departments and other some other professions too. It's that you're supposed to be tough if you're police officer or firefighter or in the military. So to uh, to share with others and disclose that you have some sort of psychological or mental health problem, that's um, uh, something they're reluctant to do because of the stigma and the stereotypes that go with it. So that is the challenge of challenges. Right. Any other challenges that you would put high on your list as the most challenging? Um, well, well, that would be that, that would be the one that, that a lot of work right now. I can speak to Canada anyway. A lot of work is now going on inside police agencies to overcome the stigma and the stereotypes, and encourage people to uh, to talk to their colleagues and uh, create an environment, an atmosphere where it, it's okay to to disclose and share that they have some 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 issues, some problems that require some attention uh, to to overcome this stigma piece that I'm talking about. Yeah. Now, next question, same lines. What do you see as the most challenging of the challenges created for police when they are called to an emergency involving someone behaving erratically and dangerously? Terry? Well, the, the, the stigma and the stereotypes apply equally in that case. And, and the benefit of this, some of these uh, programs that are now being instituted in police organizations to look at each other and understand what mental illness and mental health issues are is that uh, it enlightens them and reduces the, some of the stigma that goes around with that, which they can then apply to the situations when they deal with people outside the police uh, agency. But the challenge is um, when they uh, meet people on the outside that, uh, as you say, are behaving erratically and dangerously, is to be able to evaluate the situation. And using patience and time and effective verbal communication skills, which is contrary to some of the training and education that police have received in the last, well, 20, 30, 40 years, uh, Although many police officers are very good at this, there has been a mindset that um, that that is uh, not the most important thing to do, and that is now slowly starting to be a realization. That, uh, we have to. That's what we have to apply: is the patience, the time, the effective verbal skills to defuse or de-escalate the situation. So it's a challenge to get police officers to understand this. And here in Canada, again, 
the the training and education at our colleges, the academies, and our in-service training and education in the large police agencies is refocusing on this whole verbal communications piece that, uh, well, it comes along with the backing off we talked about earlier on, but it's about diffusing and de-escalating these situations to to, to sort of satisfactorily resolve the situation so that use of force isn't required. Right. Next, next question, all, always on the same lines, but here goes. What do you see as the most challenging of the challenges created for police when they are called to an emergency involving a family member of someone who is behaving erratically and dangerously? Terry? Well, you know, all of the above applies, but I think what is really important, really important for the police officers to remember is that the family member has likely called the police as an absolute last resort. They don't know where else to go. Uh, they may have tried and usually have all sorts of other uh, avenues to uh, get the attention for this family member that they thought that uh, was required. And as a last resort, when this person is behaving erratically and dangerously, is to call the police, and they call for help. That's fair. That's what, what police are there for. But I've seen some of these go very bad very quickly. So the challenge is for police to understand all of the above that I've mentioned, but the fact that you wouldn't be there unless these family members who obviously love their loved one, that... It, uh, they wouldn't have called you unless they were really desperate. So again, it's a question of taking time and um, and, and and using the patience and and understanding, uh, empathy if if that's applicable. Um, very very important. Right. Now we've you've mentioned stigma, and you mentioned it in the sense that um, police officers like military people and. The rest of it, soldiers, sailors, airmen, are believed and supposed to be tough. So that anyone who is one of those, but nevertheless, seems to be succumbing to um, some kind of problem like depression, for example, there's somehow something the matter with them that leads people to take a dim view of them. Now, that isn't what you said, but... That's just another way of putting it. What about that? What about that um, stigma that creeps up? What's the way, the best way of dealing with that? Well, it sounds simple, but it, it, it isn't quite as simple as it sounds. And that is to, to educate people, not only our police officers, but educate the community at large that what, what mental illness really is. It, it, it's an illness. If you saw somebody limping down the hallway at work, you'd ask them what they did to their leg and uh, may have some sort of conversation about what they should do about getting your leg attended to or whatever. Maybe it's broken or sprained ankle or whatever the case may be. And they need the same sorts of conversations around mental illness. And people are very often uncomfortable raising that subject with anybody. And of course, the person that's having these mental health problems here is usually sort of reluctant to, to share that with anybody else. Right. Now, I'm going to take a particular um, challenge, uh, which is much in the news at the moment. Military, police, and various other people 
um, post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. How does that fit into the picture of what you've just been talking about? That is to say, somebody is uh, has been through something fairly horrible and is reacting to it and in a way that many people believe is not well enough understood. What's your view of that? Well, it very much fits into that. Um, I, I, I think there's there's a segment of our society and probably a segment in our various um, police agencies and the like that uh, still still tend to say, how are the attitude? Get over it. Well, we know it isn't that simple. It's much more complex than that, and that's the wrong response. The What uh, has been happening in Canada is the Mental Health Commission, and in conjunction with the Canadian military, have... Uh, designed and launched a program called Road to Mental Readiness, R2MR. And it has now been um, adapted, and it didn't require a lot of adaptation, but it's been adapted for police agencies, and it is spreading across Canada very fast right now, major police agencies and even some of the smaller ones. The Ontario Police College is uh, picking it up to do some of the training and education for it there. And this includes... Uh, it's a, sort of the lower end mental health problems in the workplace, but also includes how to best approach and making the right referrals or helping somebody get the right referrals to the more serious situations such as PTSD. And at, the, at this moment in time, it seems to be very successful. There's been some uh, research, I wasn't part of it, but there's some research being done that... Uh, sort of validates this is the right way to go and uh, is, is successful. Um, I'm going to ask you just very quickly, because we're only a short time left on this particular discussion. What do you think that this question of this, I'm going to call it PTSD-related right. program, right, would make a topic for discussion with you or somebody like you uh, that's familiar with what's going on? What do you think? Well, I think it would make a topic of discussion. Remember, I'm not a psychologist. I'm exposed to, uh, to all this type of thing in the type of work that I do. But um, a psychologist could probably speak a lot better, and I have one in mind that you could speak to, that would be a much better position to speak about PTSD specifically. Okay, fair enough. Now, once again, we've come to the point where it's time to take the break. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley. My guest is Dr. Terry Coleman. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on Voice America's health and wellness and variety channels, CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio, and sharingtheburden.ca. Please stay with us. We're coming back. Museums are great places to work and wonderful places to visit. But are they essential? How can we improve our museum practice so that museums remain vital and essential players in society? Listen for Museum Life with host Carol Bossert, where each week we'll discuss timely and topical issues of concern to the museum community. Museum Life can be heard live every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
Dialogue is the single most powerful leadership tool we have to make a difference in the world. Leading conversations with host Cheryl Esposito creates a place for that dialogue. Tune into the Voice America Business Channel every Friday as Cheryl hosts new conversations among leaders from around the world in business, government, art, economics, and social change. We'll explore big ideas and everyday actions and learn how their own leadership has led them to discover a newfound sense of possibility in the world. Leading conversations with Cheryl Esposito, bringing big thinkers together in conversations that make a difference right here on the Voice America Business Channel every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. Are you a business innovator or are you just sitting on the sidelines? Tune in every week for Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP. Host Bonnie D. Graham talks to a cross-section of the movers and shakers who are leading by example. They will share best practices and innovative ideas to keep you thinking and moving along with the best. Join us for Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP, Wednesday mornings at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. you know I need someone. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at mymonami.com. That's doc, letter G, at mymonami.com. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Dr. Terry Coleman. Our topic is serious mental illnesses as challenges for police and people. Terry, now let's talk about help for the challenges that you've identified as the most challenging of those created by serious mental illnesses for police and people with whom the police are involved. So first of all, let's ask the question, what you see as the most successful ways of helping overcome the challenges created for police when they themselves develop serious illnesses. Terry? Well, I I would use two words uh, to start with. I would talk about organizational leadership. And by that I mean uh, the leaders of uh, police organizations in the context that we're talking about is to establish organization-wide wellness programs, mental health wellness programs, whereby everybody, all personnel, and not just police officers, but all personnel are educated and trained in, for example, the R2MR, the Road to Mental Readiness Program that I was talking about a few moments ago. And uh, they then better understand their mental health. They understand the mental health better of their colleagues. And the byproduct, the very useful byproduct, is that they better understand the people that they encounter in the public. But we are seeing an emergence here in Canada of these organization-wide wellness programs, and they're looking to be very successful. In fact, evidence to to date suggests they are being very successful. Uh, Interesting enough, this program I spoke to uh, at a conference in uh, in the United States here earlier this summer, and have now been invited back to speak on it in Chicago this coming spring. So uh, word is spreading. Right. Now, what do you see as the most successful ways for helping overcome the challenges created for police when they are called to an emergency involving someone behaving erratically and dangerously? 
Terry? Well, there's several parts to that, and that wouldn't surprise anybody, but I think we have to make sure that we're hiring the right police officers in the first place. I'm not convinced that uh, police agencies are consistently hiring the police officers that we should be hiring. Um, Many, many, many of them, of course, are, but uh, we encounter some periodically that... uh, I often wonder how they made it to be a police officer. So we've got to make sure we've got the right criteria, the right competences when we hire police officers. Then, of course, we have to make sure that we prepare them properly for all the things that we expect them to do. And in this context, uh, prepare them for these encounters uh, with people with serious mental illness. And one of the uh, studies, the research that, that myself and Dr. Cotton did for the Mental Health Commission, in fact, we've done more than one piece on it, but the most recent one was... Um, published in 2014, and that is the Tempo report you spoke about earlier on. And that looked internationally at what is going on. It looked at uh, the programs that are in place across uh, Canada, um, thorough literature review. It looked at some research that has been done. And I might add that there's a, there's a great need for additional research in this regard. And so that we made recommendations about what uh, would be the ideal a framework for learning and preparation of police officers when they're attending these situations. And there was a great emphasis placed in that on what I've already referred to, and that is the de-escalation, the verbal communications, talking to this person, and actually in the emphasizing that only one person at a time talks. That's very important. And uh, <laughs> have the communication so they can establish, hopefully, some sort of rapport with this person who's in crisis and and listen to them and it takes time so the most successful ways to help overcome the challenges is to make sure that police officers are properly prepared right now again it's another what you see as the most successful ways for helping overcome the challenges question Challenges created for police when they're called to an emergency involving a family member of someone who is behaving erratically and dangerously. Terry? Yes, well, very much, uh, you know, what I've said before there. The uh, the preparation is absolutely key. It's really useful, and there's a, a trend in Canada over the last, well, 15 years or so, is to have uh, police officers or selected police officers anyway, teamed up with a mental health person, usually a mental health nurse, sometimes a mental health social worker, as a co-response team that go to these situations. And while they're important in all of these situations, they're really important when there's a family member in attendance and uh, the, um, the situation is happening perhaps in the home where one person can speak and, and communicate well with the family member while the other one can pay attention more to the, uh, to the family member who's acting erratically and dangerously. But overall, we go, I come back to what I talked about earlier on in this, that the family called for help. And they wouldn't have done it if it hadn't have been desperate and had nowhere else to go. And they called the police as experts. So police must behave as if they were experts, and uh, 
it's difficult and challenging. I've been there myself on far too many occasions, and it takes time. You have to allow these things to... Uh, some, sometimes it takes a while just to get things relatively calm. But I think it's very key that these people would not have called the police if they hadn't have been desperate. Now, I just want to follow up on something you've mentioned more than once, and that is verbal communications. Right. Um, well, what I would say back to you is they need to be calm. But tell us more about what a verbal communication that you see as being necessary and others see as being necessary actually sounds like. What are the kind of words that people use? Please tell us about that. Well, it, it's a, it starts off as simple as, my name's Terry. Is, is there anything I can do to help you? What's your name? Just some basic low-level communication to try and get some sort of conversation. Now, the preparation, edu- you know, education and training for police officers uh, must and, and usually does um, teach uh, the police officers for the signs, symptoms, and behaviors of people who might have various forms of, of mental health uh, illnesses or mental health problems including, as you mentioned, uh, depression, Alzheimer's, schizophrenia, and the like. And, and they, they will learn in those sessions the difficulties in communicating with some of those people under you know, certain circumstances, particularly if it's compounded by substance abuse. But they talk, uh, they talk slowly. They, they talk calmly. Um, they're taught not to shout, not to raise their voice, not to scream, to be polite. Very, an issue that, uh, or a matter that's becoming very common in police learning right now is the whole concept of procedural justice. And that is treating others like you'd like to be treated yourself or members of your family be treated yourself. So the way people are treated, the interaction itself, including the verbal communications, are, I won't say they're congenial, but they're they're at a level where you can actually make some progress, or usually can make some progress in establishing some sort of communication with that person. Bearing in mind that it's not going to happen instantly in many cases. Right. Now, something else. Um, this is some research that um, is going on kind of in the field that I'm in, which is asking people who have been through these experiences themselves, you know, family caregivers where they're looking after a son who's living with schizophrenia or somebody who's been through a depression and asking them about the experiences when something went wrong in some way that got them into the hands of police, the justice system, or even healthcare system. What do you think about that? Do we need to hear more from the people who go through these experiences? Absolutely, and it's absolutely key. Uh, The literature will tell you how important that is. And One way of doing that is when you're delivering the learning uh, in usually a classroom setting to police officers, new police officers, experienced police officers, is to have somebody who is experienced, sometimes a family member, sometimes the person themselves who has experienced mental illness, come and talk to the 
police officers face to face. Yeah. And it is very effective. It actually really helps in the whole understanding and uh, sort of the uh, lesson in the stigma and stereotypes business we talked about earlier on. Uh, but it also uh, gives the opportunity for police officers to ask somebody who's not in crisis right. some questions and learn from the experiences that this person has had, what went right, what went wrong. The other thing that the Mental Health Commission did, and uh, Dr. Cotton and I were the project managers on it, we weren't the actual researchers, but uh, it was conducted in uh, British Columbia here a few years ago. It's on their website. I don't have the coordinates handy, but they uh, did a substantial study uh, surveying and interviewing uh, people who had had contact with police who had various types of mental illness and asked the same sort of questions, you know, what were their experiences, and up to the point of making recommendations on how police can do things better. And that report is a sort of seminal work, if you want. Certainly was the first time it was done in Canada, and that's on the Mental Health Commission's website. Right. In other words, we have, we who are not currently involved ourselves with a mental illness, but maybe brought in some kind of contact with somebody is who is experiencing a mental illness or somebody who's a family member or somebody who's a um, family caregiver, we have something to learn from them, um, not necessarily only from the incident, but from their experiences where they've overcome it, they've lived through it, and now they have things to share with us. Now, that was a very long-winded way of describing what you were talking about. But have I got you right? That is to say, listening to people who've been through their experiences and learning from their experiences is fundamentally important to us. Is that right? Well, Do you agree with it? Absolutely. I was fortunate enough in another police service that, uh, that uh, in Saskatchewan when I was working there, uh, there was a woman there who's a sergeant. And her son had had a total mental health breakdown while he was in university. And her and her son would agree to come and speak to the classes about their experiences. So you had the mother as a family member, the mother as a police officer, and then the son who'd encountered the police. And actually it went across extremely well. Right. That's it. Now... We're going to go for the break again because we have another segment where we can bring out some of these points again. So we'll take the break now. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, and my guest is Dr. Terry Coleman. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on Voice America's Health and Wellness and Variety channels, CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio, and SharingTheBurden.ca. Please stay with us. We're coming back. Want an insider's pass to everything that goes on in Hollywood? Join Summer Helene every week for Behind the Scenes. Summer Helene is known as the Duchess of Hollywood because she knows the insiders, legends, and celebs. 
and brings the stories, the gossip, and the backstage scoop. It's the real Hollywood, though. So this program is for adults only. Behind the Scenes can be heard live every Friday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time and 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What can you find on Get Real Radio? Well, quite honestly, who you really are. Join host James Robinson each week for a program designed to reveal more about yourself and your world through words of wisdom and profound guests. You'll discover more about the spiritual movement and how it can work with you and alert you to problems you may not be aware of. It will educate, titillate, and enlighten your mind. Get Real Radio is broadcast live every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. This could end up being the best time of your week. If you hear a dog barking or an angel singing, then you know that you are listening to Waking Up in America. Heard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific Time, Valerie Kirkard and all of her friends will bring you powerful and humorous discussions that raise thoughts and give you insight on how to live your life to its fullest potential. Adventure is always a must on Waking Up in America with Valerie Kirkard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at mymonami.com. That's doc, letter G, at m-y-m-o-n-a-m-i dot com. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Dr. Terry Coleman. Our topic is serious mental illnesses as challenges for police and people. Terry, now let's talk about what more you would like to do and what more you would like to see done to promote better understanding of the challenges that serious mental illnesses create for police and people with whom the police are involved. So first question then is, what more would you like to do to promote better understanding of the challenges? Well, we have to keep working on this whole verbal communications and de-escalation piece. That's absolutely critical. And uh, we shouldn't, uh, you know, uh, take the pressure off of that area there. But what is uh, slowly coming about here, and I've been an advocate for many years, is that in the same way that a police officer requalifies with their handgun, for example, or their baton, uh, very often, once a year, they should also requalify on their verbal communication skills and handling of crisis situations um, at least once a year. And this is slowly coming into place in Canada. The Justice Institute in British Columbia, uh, mandated by the British Columbia government, uh, is now doing that. They're doing a three-year cycle because they've got so many people to initially uh, bring up to speed. Um, I would recommend a one-year period. Uh, the Toronto Police College for the Toronto Police Service uh, are also doing a requalification. They're doing theirs annually. But I think that's very, very important. We place a lot of emphasis on, and rightly so, on being able to use their firearms and other use of force uh, tools um, properly to the point that we requalify annually. We should requalify on the other skills that are so essential uh, in these types of situations. Right. Now, what more would you like to see done, and by whom would you like to see 
it done to promote better understanding of the challenges we're talking about? Terry? Well, I think something that's very important, and uh, it's just starting to take some traction. Uh, Dr. Cotton and I have been kind of advocating this for some years, and that is for police organizations to take a strategic approach. In the same way that a police organization has an auto theft strategy or an organized crime strategy or a drug strategy, they should have a mental health strategy. And then the various programs that make that strategy work fall underneath the strategy. But it raises the whole profile of this important issue in a police organization. It provides a valuable communication, uh, means of communication internally, but also externally. And the OPP, uh, just about uh, two weeks before Christmas, launched their mental health strategy. And I would recommend people look it up because it's really well done. And that's exactly the type of thing we've been advocating. Raise the profile, lay out exactly what the situation is and how you're going to deal with it. And I think that's very, very important. Right. Now, I'm going to sort of lead a little bit on this one by asking you this. What more would you like to see done by the media and perhaps even this radio talk show to promote better understanding of the challenges we're talking about? the media and talk shows like this. What more? Terry? Well, I think, uh, again, as simple as it sounds, continue to be talking about it. And uh, because we still have a lot of work to do on the whole stigma and stereotypes and and people better understanding um, what mental illness is or what it isn't. Uh, In fact, research will tell us that there's a greater number of people with mental illness who are victims of criminal activity than there are those that are involved in criminal activity. Yet there is um, there is a belief, if you wish, that uh, people with mental illness are frequently encounter police. Well, they might, but often as victims, not just as offenders. So I think there's a whole bunch of education that's still to go on here. Right. Now, let me ask you this question. Is fear of mental illness, that is really fear of the people with mental illness, a factor in what you've been talking about, Terry? Yes. What can we do about that? Well, I, I, I think it is uh, about continuing to talk about it. Uh, and I think it's changed somewhat uh, since the creation of the Mental Health Commission back in 2007. Uh, I haven't done any particular study into this, but I've talked to lots of people about it, and it would seem that the conversation about mental illness, mental health problems, is much more common now. You read it uh, much more in the newspaper, on uh, television, you hear about it, uh, much more than one used to. And uh, there's uh, all sorts of conferences being held in that regard. I think we have a lot more work to do, but I think... uh, since the uh, 2007, when the Mental Health Commission was established, I think there's much more conversation taking place with much more work to do. Right. Now, on the question of that conversation, just very briefly, it's a conversation that should be in public uh, as much as possible. Do you agree with that? Or am oh, I wrong? absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It should be in public. And, and it should include the people we're talking about 
a little while ago here about the, who would come into a classroom with police officers and tell them about their experience. The, the public conversations should include that. And in some cases it does. There's been some quite high-profile people in Canada who've stepped up and spoken publicly about their experiences. But I think that's key for people to understand and, and hear it from the people who've been directly affected. Right. Now, we've come to the point where, unfortunately, we've come to the end of um, our allocated time. Um, this is, Terry, a very important conversation that you've had with me and our listeners, because you're speaking from experience, you're speaking from your own career uh, experience, and you're also speaking from the point of view of a researcher who's been researching in one of the leading um, research organizations, that is the Mental Health Care Commission of Canada. So what you've been saying is profoundly important, which leads me to uh, <laughs> what I am afraid to do too much, and that is to say, I would like to do another episode with you or with anybody you um, suggest to talk about things like the PTSD, um, things like the road to mental readiness, those kinds of things, because I think the more that our listeners and people everywhere hear about what's going on, the more seriously they're going to take what you're doing and the way in which they're prejudices and their misunderstandings are going to be addressed. So that's my summary of your point that, yes, we're making progress, but there's more progress ahead of us. So thank oh, you yeah. very much for that. Now, I want to say thank you to our listeners. And for comments or to ask questions, here's the email address to use. I'll pass over any questions to Terry. The email address is docg at unite or one word, dot org. So please join us for our next episode, which is Therapeutic Jurisprudence, the Lawyer as Healing, question mark. Now, I look forward to work, hearing from you, and I also look forward to talking with you during our next episode. Thank you again for joining us this week for Family Caregivers Unite with your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Please tune in again next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And until then, we hope our program will help make the coming week easier and more hopeful. And I do appreciate you being Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.